Good evening. Really, congratulations on making it through today. Many of you arrived here tired and sleepiness might have been with you or all kinds of interesting emotions. But tonight I want to talk about one of the beautiful emotions. Once again, karuna, compassion. And I want to start with a story that just illustrates everyday people in everyday circumstances. And um, this is from a New York City a taxi driver. I arrived at the address and honked the horn. After waiting a few minutes, I honked again. Since this was going to be my last ride of my shift, I thought about just driving away. But instead, I put the car in park and walked up to the door and knocked. Just a minute, answered a frail, elderly voice. I could hear something being dragged across the floor. After a long pause, the door opened. A small woman in her 90s stood there before me. She was wearing a print dress and a pillbox hat with a veil pinned on it, like somebody out of a 1940s movie. By her side was a small nylon suitcase. The apartment looked as if no one had lived in it for years. All the furniture, all the furniture was covered with sheets. There were no clocks on the walls, no knickknacks or utensils on the counters. In the corner was a cardboard box filled with photos and glassware. Would you carry my bag out to the car, she asked. I took the suitcase to the cab, then returned to assist the woman. She took my arm and we walked slowly toward the curb. She kept thanking me for my kindness. It's nothing, I told her. I just try to treat my passengers the way I would want my mother to be treated. Oh, you're such a good boy, she said. When we got in the cab, she gave me an address and then asked, could we drive through downtown? It's not the shortest way, I answered quickly. Oh, I don't mind, she said. I'm in no hurry. I'm on my way to a hospice. I looked in the rearview mirror. Her eyes were glistening. I don't have any family left, she continued in a soft voice. The doctor says I don't have very long. I quietly reached over and shut off the meter. Well, what route would you like to take, I asked. And for the next two hours, we drove through the city. She showed me the building where she had once worked as an elevator operator. We drove through the neighborhood where she and her husband had lived when they were newlyweds. She had me pull up in front of a furniture warehouse that had once been a ballroom where she had gone dancing as a girl. Sometimes she'd ask me to slow in front of a particular building or corner and would sit staring into the darkness saying nothing. As the first hint of sun was creasing the horizon, she suddenly said, I'm tired. Let's go now. We drove in silence to the address she had given me. It was a low building, like a small convalescent home, with a driveway that passed under a portico. Two orderlies came out to the cab as soon as we pulled up. They were solicitous and intent, watching her every move. They must have been expecting her. I opened the trunk and took the small suitcase to the door. The woman was already seated in a wheelchair. How much do I owe you, she asked, reaching into her purse. 
Uh, nothing, I said. Well, you have to make a living, she answered. There are other passengers, I responded. Almost without thinking, I bent and gave her a hug. She held on to me tightly. You gave an old woman a little moment of joy, she said. Thank you. I squeezed her hand and then walked into the dim morning light. Behind me, the door shut. It was the sound of the closing of a life. I didn't pick up any more passengers that shift. I drove aimlessly, lost in thought for the rest of that day. I could hardly talk. What if that woman had gotten an angry driver or one who was impatient to the end of its impatient to get to the end of his shift? What if I had refused to take the run or had honked once and then driven away? On a quick review, I don't think I have done anything more important in my life. We're conditioned to think that our lives revolve around great moments. But great moments often catch us unaware, beautifully wrapped in what others may consider a small one. So that taxi driver offers a simple simple example of a human heart responding to conditions. A a responsiveness out of awareness of the situation, the challenging situation of another person. A woman whose life was passing. She was alone. She was standing on the precipice of the great mystery. Uh, A place we're all going to find ourselves sooner or later. So that, that driver's heart opened allowing one of the most beautiful human emotions to flow. Compassion. I think my favorite definition of compassion is the quivering of a heart in response to suffering, your own or another's. The quivering of a heart in response to suffering. Compassion's a verb. It's an action. It's not, it's not a static thing. You know? It's an energy and a caring. It, and it, it's an energy and a caring that wishes for the alleviation of another person's pain. You know, when you're... You've all had this experience. You know when your heart completely opens to the suffering of another person, or yourself for that matter. In that moment, you're outside yourself, that small self. You're outside, and you're connected. For in those moments when you're feeling compassion, when it's flowing, that self-serving, self-aggrandizing, solid, separate, survival-oriented ego self has shrunk down. It's weakened, and sometimes it even disappears. There's at least, you know, for some moments, there's an openness, a flow. There's a shared field with another person with compassion. You could say it's a heart unbound. And how we come to work with our suffering, our personal suffering, and the suffering of others, And just as importantly, how we come to work with the suffering in this biosphere, 
will determine to a large degree our personal happiness and really the survival of our species. Dukkha is the Pali word for unsatisfactoriness, for suffering. It's a fact of life. You know, it's a it's just easily seen by everyone everywhere. It's this great constant churning of life. Motion, change, aging, sickness, loss, death, you know. They're known as the in Buddhism as the heavenly messengers. And it's just a, a reminder of how things are set up in this creation. You know? It's the way it is. You know. And it, but it's a reminder to wake up that this life is precious and it can be short and we don't know when it's going to end. I think Bob Dylan had a pretty good handle on it in, in a song. Um, I think it was, It's All Right, Mom, Only Bleeding. That was the song. And the line in there was, He not busy being born is busy dying. He not busy being born is busy dying. And this from... Uh, Billy Collins, it's one of my favorite Billy Collins poems. How exhilarating it was to march along the great boulevards in the flash of trumpets and under all the waving flags, the flag of ambition, the flag of love, so many of us streaming along, all of humanity really, moving in a perfect step, yet each lost in the room of a private dream. How stimulating the scenery of the world, the rows of roadside trees, the huge curtain of the sky. How endless it seemed until we veered off the broad turnpike into the pasture of high grass, headed toward the dizzying cliffs of mortality. Generation after generation, we keep shouldering forward until we step off the lip into space. And I should not have to remind you that little time is given here to rest on a wayside bench, to stop and bend to the wildflowers, or to study a bird on a branch. Not when the young are always shoving from behind, and not when the old keep tugging us forward, pulling on our arms with all their feeble strength. That's called the parade. And I've been noticing that at, that at my age, uh, the number of funerals that I attend exceeds the number of marriages of my friends that I attend. And the celebration of births are, are more likely to be the celebration of grandchildren, either somebody else's or mine, for that matter. You know, with, with both my parents having stepped off that precipice a long time ago, and my two precious grandchildren playfully pushing from behind I totally get what Billy Collins was talking about I know my place in the order here so if you can keep in mind this grand this grand procession that you are naturally a part of it can help to keep you aligned with what's most important the uh, Yaqui Mexican uh, shaman in the, in the Carlos Castaneda books of a number of decades ago, he always encouraged his shaman apprentices to 
Let death be your advisor. Let death be your advisor. I'm a cancer survivor. And, and those of you who, survive, who have survived cancer or other serious threats, um, you, know, you might have experienced afterwards this kind of renewed aliveness, this poignancy, this, you, you got this extra time, you know? And, um, and that may be a temporary, you know, experience, or if, it, if it's set deeply, it could be an ongoing, you know, that gratitude for that extra time. Um, when I look back at having cancer, I see it as a, a, a blessing. I wouldn't wish it on anybody. Um, and, I, and I do feel a little gratitude about it. That experience, combined with the benefits of this practice, the mindfulness, uh, has supported my waking up in some profound ways and maybe accelerated the process of waking up. Nowadays, I pretty much never put off to later something that I want to do or feel is important. You know, thinking, oh, I've got time. Well, because there's always this advisor on my shoulder that says, well, maybe you don't, you know? Um, And I'm noticing I'm taking more risks as I get older, not less. I kind of like that. And I'm much more able to feel the preciousness of my time with friends and loved ones, knowing it could be the last time that I see them. It's kind of like a continual refreshing splash of cold water in the face, that little advisor on my shoulder. And of course, I, I surely lapse into periods of unconsciousness. I periodically get overwhelmed by all the, the, the false weight of the minutia of life. You know, when I notice that's happening, I have this kind of visualization that, that, that comes up of little tiny rodents nipping at my ankles. All the minutia. Do this, do that, you know, make this list, you know, all that stuff but they can be easily shaken off with, with some perspective. You know, it's not a big deal. I remember there was a book a long time ago, I, I think it might have been called Don't Sweat the Small Stuff, and It's All Small Stuff. Now, I'm not sure I really believe in that, because sometimes there's big stuff that comes up in life. But really, m- most of it is small stuff. You know, I, I get that part of it. So having death as my advisor has really helped my heart to open a little more, uh, a little more compassion, a little more joy, a little more peace. I remember, it was a number of years ago now, I was uh, sitting at the Forest Refuge uh, up in Massachusetts. And it was a long, I was there for a long time, a couple of months, I think, at least. And... um, I stumbled onto a practice that I still use today, and I'll share that with you. And the backstory was, I was there for four or five weeks, really settled in, and I started noticing, ah, there's a pain. Is this a toothache way back in my jaw? And sure enough, the next day it was really up there, so I went to the administrator, and they set me up to go to the local dentist that they always send people to, a really nice guy. 
And he looked at it, took an x-ray. He said, oh, it's a wisdom tooth. And, but it looks like an easy extraction. <clears throat> you know, the small root and all this stuff. And he says, you won't have to go to an oral surgeon. I could do it right here. It was late in the afternoon. And I thought, well, great. Well, he'd start pulling out and it broke in there. And it kind of fractured. Then all of a sudden it was oral surgery and he wasn't quite up to it and I could see he didn't want to. And I can remember his face to this day kind of looking at me and he's sweating and he's grimacing and he's piece by piece and it's like, what a mess. But anyway, he did the job, sent me off back to the forest refuge and, um, and I had, I, it was three prescriptions. One for painkillers, one for antibiotic and one for, I think, swelling. So I thought, well, I'm a meditator. I'm just going to, I'm not going to take the painkillers. I'm just going to take the other ones. So a few hours into this, I was thinking, well, maybe I made a mistake by not getting that that one prescription filled. Um, But I, you know, it was applying the practice, the skillful means for how we work with strong physical sensations. And... um, the throbbing was pretty intense, as you can imagine. It was punctuated by these kind of... Um, the only way I can describe it is it's kind of bringing on the great white light. It would just go, ah, and there would be this white light. But it wasn't the white light of enlightenment, you know, that we all, we all read about. It wasn't that at all. So this, this was dukkha. Dukkha was known. And another definition of dukkha is the... That which is hard to bear. That which is hard to bear. That was hard to bear. But recognizing, I finally recognized and really, well, you're really hurting. This is suffering. This is dukkha. And that first recognition, when we recognize that, whatever is up for us, it changes the relationship to it. You know, we can get all identified and lost, but when we recognize, oh, I'm suffering. That's what's really happening here. And that primes the pump for some self-compassion. You know? So I started trying to bring a soft caring to my mouth, and it was, uh, it was really difficult. I couldn't even kind of approach this area of the jaw. So I using skillful means, I said, well, is there, where is there in my body that's not contracting? You know, and there were some spots. You know, feet, hands. So I'd start working there with a relaxation, try to work up my arms, work up my legs, little by little. You know, it was a a caring, relaxing presence. And it was making it all a little bit more workable. Nothing about it was easy. And I'd put my, you know, how we put our hands on our heart and put my hand on the jaw that was swelling up. And so I was doing everything I could to muster. And I, and the thought dawned on me, well, gee, everyone in the world, you know, suffering one way or another. And I thought of all these situations in the world, and it was a kind of generic exploration of suffering. But then the idea came, uh, since sleep was going to be out of the question, that, that I'd expand uh, that contemplation or, um, in a more specific way that I would contemplate the lives of everybody I knew, at least those I knew pretty well, and contemplate uh, all the specific flavors of suffering that I knew they were working with. 
And I discovered that every single person I knew, that I knew well enough, is challenged by some suffering in some way, some manner. There were no exclusions. And I did this for hours. You know, the, the whole laundry list of, of sufferings. A friend who'd lost a child. Someone who just was diagnosed with, with MS. All the health issues you could imagine. The burden of painful relationships with their partner. Or problems with their children. You know, or someone in the family had an addiction that everybody was trying to figure out how to support that person and help them. And then there were the caregivers who were just about worn out, just trying to stay this side of the edge of burnout. So when I was able to move outside myself for a portion of the time, there was that feeling of expansiveness some connection. And in those moments, I noticed that my personal suffering uh, had dimmed a little bit. You know, my heart quivered for others, and my own suffering dimmed a little bit. So for that entire night, I alternated back and forth, caring for myself, doing what I could for skillful means, and then thinking up yes, yet another person to contemplate and what they were dealing with. You know. It's a practice I still do, um, even when I'm not suffering from some kind of toothache. Uh, and with the many burdens that you all carry, it's so easy to lose perspective at times. It's, and, and, you know, lose perspective and lose the attunement to people around you. When things are pressing on you, the orbit of awareness shrinks down, and it's really hard to see outside that or to feel outside that. And that's the times when you can become reactive, you know, especially, you know, when people are difficult. And people are difficult, you know, it's... At times. And it's easy to forget during those times when you're pressed that, gee, this person has acted probably or almost every case acting that way because of their suffering. You know, they're reacting in some way, causing some harm. You know. And in this practice, we're asked to meet many different things. In fact, we're asked to meet everything. Yeah, to turn toward your experience, all the conditions of life, and turn toward them with, with, with a wakefulness and awareness, wisdom, and a heartfulness. Mm-hmm. And the fundamental teaching about suffering is there really is no escape. There's all the ways that you get what you don't want, you know? That's part of life. Change, aging, loss, loss of security. You know, that's a spiritual challenge to anybody who picks up that mantle. You know? And if your heartfulness muscle is a little compromised or is weak, then it's really difficult to bear your own suffering, much less the suffering of somebody else. 
or you know in an expanded an expanded sense the suffering of the world if you've been traumatized as a child or traumatized somewhere along the line and you get intermittently triggered by terror and anxiety you know you know, swirling into a trauma vortex that cripples you. You need to take very special care of yourself and titrate that experience. And in practice, we always like to err or encourage students to err on the side of compassion. Meaning that if, you feel, if you're working with a difficult emotion and you feel yourself about to become overwhelmed, the compassionate thing is to back off not white-knuckle it, I'm going to get through this. Back off. And we have the, the kind of the technique of a titration. You know, and I mentioned it before when I was working with my jaw. Well, you, you look for some part of the body that's neutral or pleasant. You pull your attention away from whatever that emotion or thought process was that you've determined might send you into overwhelm. You're at the controls in a way. I'm going to pay attention to something else. So if you can find something neutral or pleasant in the body, the tip of your nose, your pinky, whatever it is, place your attention there. That's your object of meditation. Your mind wanders, you bring it back there. Your mind wanders, you bring it back there. Allowing your body to do what it knows how to do. It does have a natural relaxation response and it will come back into regulation. Our challenge is to keep our attention elsewhere. And if your whole body is inflamed, if you don't notice it happening, and you go, oh my God, everything's kind of wild and crazy, then look out to somewhere, a piece of art, um, something in nature. Make that the object of your meditation. It's a compassionate act to divert yourself when you feel like you're going to get overwhelmed. That's not part of this practice. So you want to protect yourself. And, and if that happens for you, um, try that. Neutral or pleasant or something pleasant in the, in the environment. Or take a shower or get some tea or go, you know, find a trashy novel or something. Something to pull you out of it and allow your system to re-regulate itself because it has wisdom and it knows how to do that. So this practice strengthens, strengthens your heart, builds your capacity such that over time you're able to be with more and more of the conditions of life. And the way I've seen it with so many students and, it, and with myself when I look back is that people will say, oh my gosh, I used to not be able to deal with this particular emotion. Just freak me out, etc. Now I'm pretty okay with it. But, oh, this, I can't deal with this. That's just beyond me. Well, little by little, and I, and I fully believe this, I don't have a scintilla of doubt, that a practice fully matured can deal with anything, any emotional upheaval, any loss, any physical illness or sensation. That's... That's where you all are headed, but little by little. Right now, we all have our limits, and they keep getting extended. You know? 
But as we build confidence, we go through a cycle of some difficult emotions or difficult physical sensations. Say, oh my God, I, I can do that. Kind of, yeah, good. And the next time it comes up, oh, this is a very difficult emotion. I know it doesn't last any longer than anything else in this life. It comes, it rises, it flowers, it disappears. That's kind of the refuge of impermanence. So let's do a short reflection, just a little short reflection. Um, So close your eyes, take a few deep breaths, come back into this body, this body that may be a little sore from sitting in one position a lot today, or maybe not. So a couple of deep breaths. Now this is just a couple of minutes of practicing what I practiced in my dorm room. Bring to mind somebody you know at least pretty well. Just pick somebody. See them visually. And think about how they are challenged. How are they suffering? What flavor? And how have they suffered? Was it health? Maybe an addiction? Maybe they're worried about money. Or their job. Maybe relationships. Or their children. Or their partner. Maybe they have concerns with aging or working with the trauma they've suffered. Feel into them. And now just choose another person. What is the flavor of their struggle? And now for the last few moments of this reflection, what about you? What is your edge right now of of challenge, your burden? Is it health, career, relationship? Can you bring a little soft caring to yourself?
Ian McLaren, a Scottish philosopher, said to be kind to every person because each is carrying a great burden. So you can open your eyes now. This compassion, it by its very nature, is a connecting energy. And the strength of that compassion opens the doorway to bridging all the forms of separation that we experience as a human being. And mindfulness and compassion together can, un- can uncover all the unseen biases and heal them. You know? and when I'm talking about f- separations or felt separations, I'm talking both internally, separations we feel there, and externally. Internally, you might experience the, oh, the punishing and incapacitating self-judgment. It's just like a runaway train, you know, or shame or guilt, or in the worst cases, self-loathing. And externally, separation, separations around the, the unseen bias in, around race, around socioeconomic class or ethnicity or sexual orientation or gender religion disability and the critical separation so many people feel separated from our environment I mean all these types of separation And without the cultivation, or the greater cultivation, I should say, of us as a species of greater empathy, mindfulness, compassion, you know, our species is not going to be able to bridge these separations. And if we don't bridge these separations, we're going to perish. It's just that simple. There's too many of us. Probably used to be okay a long time ago when our ancestors were kind of in the caves, lots of space to move around, but we're on top of each other now. And we've got to find ways to heal these separations. You know. But the practices that you're learning and aspects of yourself that you're strengthening, you know, when matured, are powerful agents of healing, of connection. Actually, what we do in this practice is we're kind of pushing the envelope of, of evolution. You know, we're kind of moving beyond just the simple survival energies of, oh, I need more. You know, we can move beyond that. We can train our nervous system and our brains, and we need to. Yeah. So I want to take a few moments and parse out some of the cousins of compassion. Empathy and sympathy. And we'll also look at pity. Um, Some of these words get used indiscriminately and interchangeably. So when somebody dies, uh, you send their family uh, a sympathy card. But why don't you call it a compassion card? Or an empathy card? You know, are they all the same? Are they different? How are they different? You know? Here's some quick definitions. Empathy means that you actually feel 
some close approximation of what the other person is feeling. Sympathy is that you can understand what the other person is feeling, but you don't really feel it. It's not a visceral thing. And compassion has the willingness to, actually has the willingness and the intention to relieve the suffering of another person. So I'll just unpack this a little bit. All right. Empathy is feeling viscerally what another person feels. You can actually feel in your body some reasonable proximity to what that person's feeling. And researchers call the, that phenomena uh, as the result of mirror neurons. We've probably all heard that now. So empathy may arise automatically when you witness somebody in pain. You just, oh. Recently, a close friend of mine uh, had to endure having a catheter put in his penis. Does that make you squirm? Made me squirm, you know. As he described it, I could feel myself contract. You know, I winced. Actually, had a sensation down there. Ouch. You know, it, what that meant is my mirror neurons kicked in. Empathy was activated. Maybe that wasn't a good example, but you get me. <laughs> I won't say anymore. Uh, now, you might not always feel viscerally how another person is feeling, and that's, that's when you need to rely on your imagination. And, and we've all heard it growing up. You know, put yourself in someone else's shoes, okay? That's the other route to empathy. For example... I might walk out here and walk down these steps and you're all standing around and I trip and fall. I wrench my back. I kind of pull myself together and I'm going, ugh. And I'm rubbing my back. And, but you don't feel it. But when you think about it and you use your kind of cognitive abilities, you could begin to feel what it's like. Many of you have had wrenched backs, you know. So you can begin to get a little taste of it. So that's, that's empathy that can be brought on just by thinking about it a little bit. All right? You know, you didn't automatically feel it, but you kind of, you kind of conjured it, so to speak. Now, empathy isn't just for unpleasant feelings, you know? You can feel empathy when you, feel, when you come across somebody who's really happy. You know what it's like when a, when a good friend approaches you with a, just a, a, so much warmth and a big smile and a greeting? You, you can't help but smile and feel some of that. You know, there's, a, there's a, this beautiful relational field of good cheer. That's really nice, you know? And with mindfulness practice, we can kind of notice that. Oh, look at, look at this relational field I'm in now. Isn't that cool? And we can, we can encourage our nervous system to recognize that more and more by, by, by just pausing for that moment and notice what's going on, you know? To where we incline the mind, the mind is inclined to go. So Now, sympathy, and, and, it's, and it's not easy to differentiate between sympathy and empathy, but there is a difference. 
You know, in, as I said, the main difference between empathy, where you're viscerally feeling something, and sympathy, sympathy, you don't feel it. You know, but you understand it. If, if somebody died um, who's close to a friend of yours, you might not feel the loss, but you can bring your cognitive skills online and you, and you kind of assume that that person is sad. So it might make sense then to send a sympathy card, you know? And it's, um, it's, it's you're expressing the understanding that I know you're suffering. You're not feeling that person's pain, but you want them to know that you're aware of their suffering. It's a beautiful gesture. But compassion, of course, takes empathy and sympathy a step forward. When you're compassionate, um, okay, you literally and viscerally feel the pain of another person. You know, that's the empathy part. You may feel that. Or maybe you don't quite feel that, but you recognize that the person is pain. And then you do your best to alleviate that. That's that extra compassion step. That's that activation. That's that real connection. You know, at its Latin roots, the Latin roots of compassion is to suffer with. When you're compassionate, you're not running away. You're not running away from suffering. You're not turning your back on it. You're not, and you're also not feeling overwhelmed by it. And you're not pretending that suffering doesn't exist. When you're practicing compassion, you can stay present with suffering. And it's a practice, little by little. And learning to stay with suffering, yours or another person, and not get identified with it, totally lost in it, consumed by it, that's the razor's edge of your spiritual practice, right there. And then there's pity, the near enemy of compassion. It kind of can look like compassion for a while. That's what a near enemy is. It kind of looks like it, but uh-uh, it's not. You know. Instead of feeling the, the kind of openness and connection that you feel when you're feeling compassion, you know, pity says, oh, that poor slob, that poor person. I feel sorry for people like that, you know. Pity sees them as different than you. It sets up a separation. It increases the separation between yourself and others. There's this palpable sense of distance and remoteness from the suffering of others when pity is activated. And that actually, unfortunately, affirms and inflates the self at the expense of another. You know, pity, pity grows that sense of a solid, separate self. Oh, I'm different and better than them. That's pity. Compassion, on the other hand, recognizes the suffering of, a, of another person is a reflection of our own pain. It's like compassion says, well, hey, I understand this. I suffer the same way. It's very empathic. Compassion is a shared suffering. 
it's on a level playing field, so to speak. It's not you're up here and this other person is down here. It's like, ah, look at this shared human element right here. I get it. Another enemy of compassion is despair. That's kind of falling off that edge and being so identified and lost in another suffering that you can't climb out, at least for a while. But compassion, you know, compassion is this kind of potent um, readiness, a tender readiness of the heart ready to respond to suffering where it, where it sees it without despair, without resentment, without aversion. It's the wish to dissipate suffering. And, and compassion embraces sorrow. And, and nobody's a perfect compassionate being. At times, you're going to slip into pity or despair without even knowing it. That's the nature of a near enemy. They're subtle, clandestine. But the power of your mindfulness practice you know, will allow you to recognize what's going on. And the more powerful your mindfulness practice, the earlier you'll recognize, oh, oh this isn't compassion, this is pity. I'm kind of separating myself out here. What can I do to make a correction? How can I feel into this and maybe open my heart and close that separation a little bit? Let's try to get get at this and the, the nuances of this with another short reflection, okay? So close your eyes again and come back into the body. This will be a visualization. Imagine you're walking along and you're coming near a, an overpass in a, in a city, or right near a city. And it's, there's busy traffic, it's noisy. And under the overpass, you see a woman and her child. And she's obviously homeless. They both are. They have a shopping cart filled with their belongings. There's a tarp down on the dirt. And the child, who's about it's a six-year-old little girl, and she's playing with a couple of toys that are broken. Her mom is has a little cook stove and she's cooking up something. And you're walking on that side of the street and you can actually see that the mom is sobbing a little bit, very quietly. Her daughter doesn't even notice. So feel into that scene. It's, it's, it's a hot day. Feel the dust churned up by the, and the grit churned up by the cars. You're walking past. What's going on inside? What emotions stir within you? What are you feeling? 
Is it empathy? Can you viscerally feel into that woman or child? Or is it sympathy? Does your heart open to them in understanding of their plight? Or does there well up compassion, a desire to do something about this? Or maybe there's an, as you walk by, maybe there's an undefined uncomfortableness, even a numbness. Gosh, there's so much suffering. We can get numb. Or is it pity? Is there a gulf, a separation? Maybe there's even anger at a culture that would allow this. And maybe even anger at the mother for allowing this to happen. All kinds of possibilities of, of our human reaction to this scene. So open your eyes. Your response might have been simple or complex. We get challenged by this a lot. Do we avert away? Do we engage? You know, staying in touch with our body and what's happening there can give us, can inform us. And maybe at times we do step out of our comfort zone. Maybe at other times we just can't. You know, we're humans. Currently, one of my many roles in this life is uh, that of a caregiver. I'm supporting an old friend of mine that I've known for many, many years, helping him through a difficult time. On one hand, I really love this person dearly, and I'm trying to do everything I can to support and alleviate, relieve the suffering. On the other hand, though, uh, during this period, I've had some less than compassionate emotions come up. And those of you that have been caregivers, or even parents for that matter, you know what I'm talking about. You know, there's been some impatience. It doesn't take my advice. It doesn't do what I say. Almost ever, you know? you know? So there's some irritation. Irritation. I might notice some judgment, some resentment. You know, and some thoughts like, damn, you know, he did that, they did that to themselves. They got themselves in this pickle. But again, it's the recognition. If my mindfulness is somewhere nearby and I recognize, oh, look at this, judgment, resentment. And I can take a little step back. the perspective can right itself. Yeah. The heart can maybe open a little bit. And I realize that this dear friend is, is doing everything that he can with what he has available. And causes and conditions, lots of them, many of which, most of which, I don't even know, brought, brought the situation to this point. 
That includes all the emotional scarring of, of childhood. And if you have any, any, if you're open to anything about past lives, well, maybe it has something to do with that too. So the scarring and the, and the effects of a lifetime, all those conditions combine to limit the ability of this individual to, to support their own healing or their own benefit, support their own benefit or their own happiness in some way. So as my view opens to that, that wider perspective, it becomes easier to hold the situation with a goodly amount of compassion and equanimity, that balanced state of mind, which I'll talk about in a couple of days. So you are human with imperfect responses. Your mindfulness practice, as it gets stronger, will alert you sooner and sooner to what's actually happening. And you can feel all the complex and paradoxical motion of this great mystery of being human as it rolls through and rolls through you. First this, then that. On and on. And you can learn to do this, to be with this experience of being human without grasping so much or pushing away so much. You can learn to experience this this humanness directly without harshness or judgment. Ah, look at this. I'm a human again. Look at these emotions that are rolling through. Or look at that reaction I had. And with the action, the action and the activation of self-compassion, your good heart then gets, is primed to overflow, primed to overflow with that compassion to all of creation and helping bridge all that separation that we need to as a species. I'm going to finish up with a short poem by... Rashani, I'm sure many of you heard this, but it always strikes a chord for me. There is a brokenness out of which comes the unbroken, a shatteredness out of which blooms the unshatterable. There is a sorrow beyond all grief which leads to joy and a fragility out of whose depths emerge strength. There is a hollow space too vast for words through which we pass with each loss out of whose darkness we are sanctioned into being. There is a cry deeper than all sound whose serrated edges cut the heart as we break open to the place inside which is unbreakable and whole while learning to sing. So let's sit together for just a moment. There is a cry deeper than all sound whose serrated edges cut the heart as we break open to the place inside which is unbreakable and whole while learning to sing. <laughs>